Marianne had it rough growing up. Born with a cleft palate and a disfigured face, she also had lopsided feet and walked kind of funny. So naturally, she was the target of all the school-age cruelty the other children could muster. They would taunt her. Did you, did you cut your lip? They would sneer. How come you walk like a duck? Some would ask. Well, she lived in a dark world of social exclusion, of profound alienation. And with no reason that tomorrow would be any different than today or the day before. Now, Marianne lived a number of decades ago, and as she was growing up, teachers were required to administer a kind of homespun hearing test. And the teacher would call each student up to her desk one at a time and have the student cover one ear and then the other. And the teacher would whisper something to see if the child could hear out of both ears. Well, Marianne dreaded, dreaded this test. Happened every year, and it always happened in front of the class. And to go along with many of, with her many other physical disabilities, she was also deaf in one ear. And so this test would be yet another chance for her to be singled out for her deficiencies. Our past, our present, our circumstances, they dictate our future, don't they? They tell us whether we can have hope about tomorrow. And normally the bottom line is that what has been will be. Well, this is a, an exact situation or a similar situation where that Mary Magdalene found herself in at the tomb. What has been will be. Now, have you ever wondered why is Mary at the tomb to begin with? Now, some accounts tell us that she came with spices to anoint the body, but if there's this gigantic stone in front of the tomb, how would that even be possible? Whatever her reason, she wasn't there because she expected to find an empty tomb and a risen Savior. And most of us can sympathize with her disbelief or her unbelief or her doubt. The resurrection is an astounding, extraordinary, profound idea. And it's difficult to believe. Even if we don't struggle with, with intellectual doubts about the circumstances of the resurrection, every Christian I know, myself included, lives inconsistently with the claims of Jesus' resurrection. Perhaps like Mary Ann, we're weighed down by past slights and disparaging remarks. They haunt us. They gnaw at us. And while we proclaim internally, he is risen, the words of others still hold sway over us. They dictate what we can and cannot hope for in our future. Maybe we believe in the resurrection intellectually that Jesus literally came out 
of the tomb, but the sadness, the struggles of this life drive us to places of despair and cynicism and anger, or maybe just boredom and numbness. But it's not just the trials of this world that undermine the resurrection in our lives, right? But those of you who are tasting success, who have savored a bit of prosperity, of affluence, don't we allow these things to take hold of our heart, of our minds, of our dreams of the future? These things whisper to us that we can have control in an unpredictable world, that we can have security in a broken environment. And so the significance of resurrection, whatever we say we might believe, inflated on Easter deflates the following week. It ceases to be revolutionary. It ceases to be foundational to our life. For whatever reason Mary is there, we surely can't blame her for her her doubt and her despair and her utter confusion. But when she gets there, she discovers that the body has been moved or maybe it's been stolen. And you can imagine her thinking, they've killed our friend and now they desecrate his grave? Wasn't a public crucifixion enough? You see, her coming to the tomb wasn't a hallelujah, call and response moment. She's dejected, confused, and probably offended. She goes to tell Peter and John, they've taken our Lord. And so Peter and John go to confirm. And their response is, well, I guess you're right. And that's it. That's all they do. They're not curious. They're not equally offended. They seem completely paralyzed. They don't set out to find the body because they're not expecting resurrection any more than Mary, any more than perhaps you and I this morning. So they go back to whatever it was they were doing before. They go back to cowering in fear behind locked doors. What has been will be. But Mary, Mary returns, and here's where things get interesting or strange, depending upon your perspective, because there are two angels where Jesus' body should have been, and they ask her, why are you weeping? It's been a few days since the crucifixion, and she's still visibly distraught. Her answer to this strange question is that they have taken him away, whoever they is. And then she turns around and she sees Jesus, but John, the gospel writer, chooses to maintain the narrative tension here and tells us that Mary doesn't even recognize him. She mistakes him for the gardener. But what a mistake it is. Now, there's another time after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus where Jesus 
seems to intentionally conceal his identity, but John doesn't tell us that Mary's lack of recognition is something supernatural. And yet there's something supernaturally profound in her errant guess at who Jesus is. It seems that she generally, genuinely doesn't recognize Jesus. Her brain is still operating in a Good Friday world where fear and loss and finality of death still reign. What has been, will be. Jesus is dead, her hopes are dashed, and her sorrow will go on and on and on. But let's linger here for a moment in this mistaken identity because the details are curious, perhaps prophetic. See, Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. If you go back 20 chapters to the very beginning of the Gospel of John, he opens with this stunning paragraph, in the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 3, through him, the Word, Jesus, through him all things were made. And without him nothing was made that has been made. Light and dark, stars, the cosmos, the earth, the land, the sea, and finally, mankind. Where did all of this creation take place? Exactly, in a garden. It's also there that the beauty of God's creation begins to be spoiled and disfigured. Humanity begins to turn inward and away from God, rejecting his gracious care and despoiling his creation to the point that what is needed is nothing less than a new creation. Maybe what John is telling us through Mary's mistaken identity is that Jesus is not a gardener, but he's the gardener. He's the gardener of the new creation. His resurrection, then, is creation being rebooted. In one sense, we have this case of mistaken identity. Mary doesn't recognize him, but in incredible irony, Mary does identify Jesus as the answer to a very ancient problem. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians that Jesus is, in fact, the firstborn of a new creation. There are cosmic consequences to Jesus' resurrection. And as Tolkien has so beautifully said in Return of the King, a great shadow has departed, and everything sad is going to come untrue. What has been, in other words, does not have to be. What has been for Mary, for you, and for me, does not have to be. See, there are cosmic consequences to Jesus' resurrection, but there are also very personal ones. Notice how Jesus speaks with Mary 
in the midst of great trauma and grief. She says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And Jesus says to her, Mary. Mary. We see this profound intimacy. Creation's gardener calls her by her name. We don't know a lot about Mary. She's a key figure in the resurrection narratives. She becomes the first preacher of the good news. It's her, a woman, rather than the male disciples who is entrusted with the announcement of Jesus rising. St. Augustine calls her the apostle to the apostles. But there's more to her story, and it's not quite so prestigious. We are told in Matthew's gospel that she was possessed by seven demons. And Jesus met her in a moment of spiritual bondage and social exclusion and profound alienation. And he rescued her. Spiritually oppressed, no hope, no way out, and Jesus set her free. She was lost and then found. She was sick and then healed. She was broken and then made whole. Her experience of Jesus, you see, wasn't abstract. It wasn't confined to some disembodied future. But her experience of Jesus was relevant to the here and the now. To Mary Magdalene, Jesus was a dear friend that she had lost. But he also represented life, salvation, redemption, hope. With him, her past didn't have to dictate her future any longer. But now he was gone. She's one of the last to leave the cross. And now she goes back after telling the disciples. She goes back to the tomb. She lingers, hoping against hope. When we encounter Jesus's resurrection, it's a chance for us to rethink our own stories. Is there a way for them to be different, truly and forever different? Jesus called Mary's name, and her story would never be the same. What has been does not have to be. Remember Mary Ann, the student with the many disabilities and a life defined by them? Well, one year, Mary, Mary Ann got a new teacher. Miss Leonard was short and kind of round, but she shined with kindness. On the day of the hearing test, Mary Ann kind of waddled and shuffled forward, reluctant to be in view of the entire class again. She covered up her bad ear first 
And then Miss Leonard leaned in close and Mary Ann heard words that would change her life forever. Because for Mary Ann's hearing test, Miss Leonard whispered to her in her good ear, I wish that you were my little girl, Mary Ann. And through those words, and in the midst of her personal darkness, Mary Ann heard the voice of love, the voice of grace, the voice of inclusion, and it changed her. And to her as a Christian, it was the voice of Jesus speaking through Miss Leonard. Mary Ann actually grew up to be a teacher herself, and now she teaches with kindness and grace for all of her students. And it started when Mary Ann heard Jesus call her name through the voice of a middle-aged, unremarkable teacher. John 20 gives us an Easter that fits us. He gives us an Easter that can travel with us into daily life. If Easter requires constant hallelujahs and call and response exuberance, who could maintain that? I know I can't. Most of us are probably experiencing life where we're not sure that we can outrun our shadows, where our past continues to dictate our future, where what is will continue to be forevermore. But Jesus, you see, friends, he knows your name. Just as surely as he knew Mary Magdalene's name, bringing her Easter hope the very moment he spoke it. Can you hear him whispering your name? No matter how deep the darkness of your life may seem, listen. Listen for his voice calling to you personally. The resurrection is the starting point of a new life where what has been does not have to be any longer. Not just for you, but for the life of the world as well. The resurrection, you see, is the down payment on a new creation. It is the first installment of a world that is set right, where that which is sad will come untrue. And we are called to act in word and in deed as if it is true. And that means that today, your past, your sin, your failures, they don't hold sway over you any longer. They no longer dictate your future. And it means that we as a church can act as if Jesus is alive and lean into our uncertainty with hope. We can lean into our city in a future world when we can come out in public again. We can lean into the places in our city that seem so bound to the way things are and say no longer does that need to be true. Where each of us, where each of us, 
is invited to be the voice of Jesus, to speak others' names with grace and kindness and new life. In Easter, Jesus is set in motion, a new creation. He has cultivated something magnificent, something that you wouldn't believe if you were told. But if you believe it, his new resurrection life is now yours for the taking. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that we would live into your resurrection life, that we would believe that possibilities are ours for the taking, taking rather than continual despair and darkness, that we don't live in a zero-sum world, that there is an abundance of grace and kindness and love that is found in you. And so, Father, let us seek that. Let us know it. Let us not only believe it, but live it. And I pray that you would plant flags of resurrection in all of our lives. And would you plant the seeds of resurrection in our little church as we move into the uncertainties of an unknown future? Would you be with, with us and would you help us to believe in resurrection? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.